Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, Ottawa's mayor on the inquiry stand. We needed that act. And it's fine for someone out, uh, you know, west or down east to say, well, you know, it was overkill. No, we needed that act. Outgoing Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson described an overwhelmed city pushing for support that came too late during the February convoy. Why was the Premier accused of hiding at the National Inquiry today? We'll break it all down with CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver and one of the city councillors who represented the Red Zone, then defending the Arctic. Russia seeks to undermine a rules-based international order, while China seeks to bend it to its advantage. Canada's top soldier warns of Arctic threats as Putin wages war on Ukraine. Is our military prepared to defend the North? We'll have MPs debate that. And Kyiv under fire. What happened in Kyiv uh, was completely unacceptable. Ukraine's capital faces a deadly bombardment. We take you to Kyiv and get the latest on the ground from a member of the Ukrainian parliament. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Now we begin with breaking news from BC where sources tell CTV News an RCMP officer has been stabbed and killed. It happened at a homeless encampment at a park in Burnaby. It's a female officer who died on the scene. Sources telling CTV that a suspect was also shot. No word on their condition at this point. There is a major police presence with RCMP, Vancouver Police and the canine, the canine unit on the scene. This is a breaking news story and we'll bring you updates as they become available. Let's move now over to the Emergencies Act inquiry. Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson spent hours testifying today about the city's response to the convoy, the provincial and federal response to the convoy as well, and how the city quickly lost control of the situation. We lost control in the red zone because we couldn't uh, even contain uh, jerry cans going in. You know, in, in one or two incidents, the chief explained to me, uh, the police tried to stop them, and then they were swarmed by 100 uh, truckers. We also needed the Emergency Act, uh, or I believe truly that we would have been in a stalemate for several more weeks, which would just be intolerable. When you look, at it, look back in hindsight on what happened, um, there were many failure points along the way. And, um, you know, whether it's the city or uh, the provincial or the federal governments, that was just a sample of testimony today from Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson. He peeled back the curtain, revealing some of those behind-the-scenes conversations with municipal officials, police officers, and even the Prime Minister. Watson admitted that the city lost control of the so-called red zone area in the core of the city, describing people setting off fireworks near heritage buildings, others dancing on the tomb of the unknown soldier. It was a scene that so many witnessed, but now we are seeing how politicians reacted to it behind closed doors. Joining me now to talk more about it is CTV News parliamentary reporter Annie Bergeron-Oliver. Annie, thanks for joining us. First of all, the bombshell, in my opinion anyway, was this conversation between the Prime Minister and Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson, where he said, quote, Doug Ford has been hiding from his responsibility on it and for political reasons. Quite the revelation. Yeah, I think that this was really the most politically significant bit of news that we got out of today's testimony. First, we also have to think about the fact that this is likely something covered by cabinet confidence. You don't normally get these types of private conversations handed to you. And so this is really an opportunity that's very rare to look behind the curtain and see what these conversations were. We also have to remember the timing of this conversation. It happened so early on in the convoy. It was only about four days in that the very first call happened mm -hmm. to the prime minister. 
Center. We learned that today. This one, I believe, was the first week of February, on February 8th. And so it really points to a level of frustration with the Premier, and it goes back to what Watson's full testimony was today about the failures at all level of government. But really what this tells us, you know, the fact that the Prime Minister says that, you know, Ford is hiding from his responsibility. Right. You say the Prime Minister in this message talks about if they continue to drag their feet that will stand behind you, the need to not let him sort of get away with this. Clearly, there was a frustration from both levels that Ford wasn't doing enough. And in the testimony today, Watson talked a lot about that, the fact that Ford didn't come to different tri-level meetings. That made it more complicated because they didn't know what the OPP were doing. They didn't know what the Ontario Provincial Police and the province were doing. And the federal government, even at one point in these trilateral meetings that Ford wasn't at, seemed to suggest that it would be easier to know what type of federal resources were needed right. if the province was there. Watson even pointed out that there was this growing frustration that, you know, he felt his message was not getting across to Ford. What he did say is when Ford finally decided to act, that the premier was on side and offered to help as much as possible here in Ottawa. But the Watson mayor said that, you know, really more needed to be done much sooner. Only about 20 seconds left. Did the mayor actually take any responsibility for Ottawa in all of this in terms of him not doing enough? He did talk about the fact that there were failures at all levels. Mm -hmm. He said there were some constraints, but I, I'm sure that there are some who would say Ottawa could have done a lot more and Watson could have taken more of the fall for that. Really, today, the focus was on a level of failure at all levels of government and how everyone should have done more and done it faster. Appreciate this, Annie. Thanks a lot for all your reporting on this. That's CTV News parliamentary reporter Annie Bergeron Oliver. Now, let's bring in someone who testified at the commission last week. Now, what does he make of Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson's testimony? And does he think the city did everything it could with the information available? Let's find out. And joining me now is Ottawa City Councillor Mathieu Fleury. He represents the Rideau Vanier Ward. That's one of the wards impacted by February's convoy. Councillor Fleury also testified at the Emergencies Act inquiry on Friday. Councillor Fleury, thanks so much for joining us. I'll get right into it. Today, Mayor Watson testified that the city lost control of the so-called red zone, adding there was lawlessness. Now, you describe this as chaos within chaos. When you testified on Friday, you said that while the mayor did respond to your concerns, he did not respond as quickly as he could have. Do you think that delay in action contributed to that loss of control? Uh, in some ways, absolutely. But the first mistake to me was uh, when the, the police chief allowed for big trucks to come off of truck routes and make their way to Parliament Hill and area. The, the, the physical area I represent for those who live in Ottawa or have been to Ottawa is really, really east of the Rideau Canal. It includes the Chateau Laurier, the Byward Market, Rideau Street, uh, the, uh, the the commercial uh, property in the Rideau Centre. So we were at the, we were not Parliament Hill, but we're the, the kind of the front gates, if you will, of the residential areas and commercial areas in Ottawa. So I just wanted to add to that, and we heard at the commission that hotels had warned the city that protesters were planning to stay between up to 90 days, actually. Now, some of those hotels would be in your ward. So did you know about yes. it, and what did you do with that information? I was well aware uh, the Hotel Association did inform us, and I, I passed that information along to the city manager and to uh, police authorities. And it, it certainly, that information was discussed in the briefing Wednesday before uh, the convoy arrival. Uh, and as you can see, it did not deter uh, or change the police approach. And 
we saw how, how that unfolded. There's a number of issues, right? You were talking earlier about the mayor. I think the, 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 the chief allowing for the trucks to make their way through um, the downtown outside of truck route was one of the issues. The second one to me was the lack of declaration of state of emergency by the city of Ottawa. It came in, you know, a week or so later. Um, and, and, and through that week, really there was little information provided for residents and businesses yet most were closed and uh, yet most residents were facing the noise, the fumes, and uh, the aggressions uh, going out of their front door. And but that, I, I testified on that issue on Friday. But the information from the Hotel Association, was it taken seriously? Was it discarded out of hand? I mean, uh, obviously, if you passed it along, you thought it serious enough. Uh, yes. But do you think that everybody else took it seriously enough? You know, hindsight, you can look back and sort of question who did what, who didn't do things. That information was shared. Uh, what they did with it or how that changed the the authorities' response. I'm not, obviously, I don't think it, it had any impact. Um, Ottawa is used to protests. Uh, we have about 99 a year. Uh, this one was very different, and, and the city and, and the authorities weren't prepared for it. So because Ottawa is so used to protests, was there a time when you yourself was conf- were confident that the city would be able to keep this under control and to keep it to just a weekend-long protest, as many people had thought it would be? You know, it, it came very quickly, and then the next thing you knew, the, week, the first weekend had gone by with, with the chaos environment that... Uh, for resi- for our residents, and and you know, I, I I've been at the I testified now I've you know spoken publicly. I, I want to reiterate, I'm a local city councilor. I speak for residents and businesses in my area. So when folks are not from my community, when they're not from Ottawa, and they comment, it's it's challenging, right? Because I've lived it. I I saw firsthand the impacts it's had on my community, and obviously, I hope the inquiry, the commission goes much further than looking at the Emergencies Act, but really looks at how to support us residents and, and residents in, in Ottawa and, and for us in a capital, how do we ensure that that risk is mitigated and that even through the ups and downs of periods of protests and, and risks that people can live in the capital and that businesses can operate safely. Today we heard from Mayor Watson saying that the province was unwilling to participate in these trilateral meetings. Do you think the province let the city of Ottawa down? I think all levels of government failed the situation. Um, Often in Ottawa, people think that we're a federal district and the federal government takes care of us. It's not the reality. We remain a city under the authority of the province. And in this case, both the city and the province and the feds, uh, all three uh, levels of government, uh, had things they did not do. They did not respond fast enough. They they did not take the the situation seriously enough fast enough. I wanted to ask you just finally here, we have just about a minute left. Do you think that the federal government was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act? So I'm not a lawyer. and uh, No, but you're a citizen. As you mentioned, you're a citizen and you were living there and you're a city councillor. Yeah. So for me, when the Emergencies Act was enacted, it dismantled the situation. So I find there's a direct correlation between what was enacted and what I, you know, we were able to get our lives back as a city uh, after that. Was that the right tool? Was it used effectively? I don't know, but I can say that after that was enacted, residents in, in Ottawa and in the capital and, and businesses were able to reopen. The next day, the Rideau Centre, which is our largest commercial property, was able to open. Transit was able to get back on the streets. 
that to me is a sign that it was a tool that we needed, but I don't know the, the legal mechanics or, you know, the threshold by which it, it is enacted. That, that's outside of my paradigm. Councillor Mathieu Fleury, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The city of Ottawa is heading to an election on Monday. Councillor Fleury is not seeking re-election and he has not endorsed any candidates. Well, coming up today, Canada's top military commander warns MPs about global threats in the Arctic. Are Canadian troops prepared to defend the Arctic coast from intercontinental missiles? We'll put that question to our panel of defense MPs. Stay right here. Power Play will be right back. The world is more dangerous now than at any time since the Cold War and maybe even since the eve of the Second World War. The rules-based international order that has underpinned our peace and prosperity for 80 years is fragile, threatened, and needs to be defended. So are we on the verge of the Cold War 2.0? The head of the Canadian Armed Forces is warning MPs of the precarious situation in Canada's Arctic. At today's House Defence Committee meeting, Chief of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre, raised warnings about Russia's and China's Arctic interests. Last June, Defence Minister Nita Anand announced $4.9 billion over six years to modernize NORAD. But as Russia escalates their attacks on neighboring Ukraine, is Canada ready for a potential military face-off with our northern Arctic neighbor? Let's ask our panel of MPs. We have National Defense Parliamentary Secretary Brian May here. We also have Conservative Defense Critic James Bazan and Deputy NDP Defense Critic Lindsay Matheson. Thank you all for taking the time. Mr. May, I wanted to ask you, as Ukraine, as um, we, we are seeing this, as Ukraine is being bombarded by Russia and missiles and drone strikes, should the federal government be rethinking its position and now join the U.S. ballistic missile defense program? Well, look, we're, we're obviously very keenly aware of what, what's happening in Ukraine. We're watching that very closely. Um, our position has not changed on, on uh, the ballistic missile program, um, but we do absolutely need to pay attention uh, to our northern flank uh, and, and making sure that, that we are prepared uh, for any eventuality. But without that defense... Can Canada defend itself from Russia? Well, Anita Nan, you mentioned it earlier, has, uh, Minister Nan has actually uh, announced and made a commitment of, of over $40 billion over the next 20 years to modernize NORAD, to work with our American allies, uh, to ensure that we are prepared, that we do have the resources and the capabilities in the North. So, Mr. Bazan, is that sufficient, or do we need to really get into that ballistic defense system? Well, I think if you listen to uh, General Earth today, he was talking that uh, we have a lot of challenges in the North right now, and we have a growing threat environment that we have to address. So, yes, we do need to be part of ballistic missile defense. Yes, we need new aerial defense systems that can also take down other uh, uh, threat environments, uh, whether they're high, hypersonic cruise missiles, drones, or anything else. We need to be able to better protect Canada as well as uh, North America under our obligations through NORAD. And he also talked about needing to up our game uh, subsurface. So that means that we have to have under ice capabilities to, to monitor and see what's happening in, in our Arctic Ocean. And that means that we have to have submarines that can stay under the ice for long periods of time to monitor what's coming in. So he, 
laid out all the challenges that are before us. It's up to us as politicians to ensure that we have the programs in place. You know, North Warning System has to be updated. Right. Uh, we have to make sure we go ahead and modernize NORAD. And, you know, on ballistic missile defense, we're sitting in the room <coughs> and providing half the technology that the Americans are using to make the decision on whether or not it's a go or no-go to shoot down a ballistic missile. And with Iran and North Korea also acquiring ballistic missiles that have uh, strike capabilities, uh, we better be part of that decision-making process as a member of NORAD. Right. Ms. Madsen, what do you think? Do we need to get, rethink that position? Um, you know, a lot of the conversations that we were having many, many years ago about this when it first came up in the early 2000s was the fact that uh, it was 50 percent uh, inaccurate mm -hmm. um, and that it was a huge, huge money sink. And so there are so many different um uh, pulls on the Canadian Armed Forces now that um, our strengths need to lie elsewhere, in, in my opinion. And ultimately, um, that's what General Air was talking about today. He was talking about all these different integrated systems, um, uh, how we can be far more effective in terms of deterrence, uh, the difference in that, how we're working on that. I asked him about um, our relationships in terms of multinational mm -hmm. organizations around the world and how that is our better defense um, in terms of, of of Canada's role in the world. Mr. May, I want to ask you, as Canada's looking to procure more weapons for both Ukraine and to restock the ones that we've already mm -hmm. sent, are we heading for another arms race? Well, look, I'm not going to speculate on, on something like that. I think uh, we have made decisions uh, long before Ukraine to invest in, in, in our defense. Uh, uh, strong, secure, and engage, our defense strategy um, calls for a 70% increase in defense spending. We saw uh, $8 billion added to the budget just this past year. Uh, as I'd mentioned, the $40 billion for NORAD, but that's on top of uh, new Arctic offshore patrol ships, which we're seeing three of them right now in, in active duty uh, patrolling the north. Uh, we had our first uh, circumnavigation of, of, uh, of North and, and, mm -hmm. and South America in over 50 years. Uh, uh, HMCS Harry DeWolf did that. Um, so we have invested uh, significantly in our military. Uh, we need to do more. We need to continue to, uh, to follow the plan. Uh, and and this we're, the activities we're seeing around the world is is proof positive of that. It's procurement, but it's also personnel, Mr. Bazan. And mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about that. General Air was talking about how the CAF is struggling to fill about ten thousand military positions. Where does that leave us right now, in your opinion? And what can Canada do to boost those numbers? Yeah, I think last week, uh, General Ayer described it as an existential threat to the Canadian Armed Forces. Mm -hmm. So when, when he was describing uh, readiness to us at committee today, personnel is first and foremost. So you've got to have the operators. And right now, one in ten positions is going unfilled. So we have to up our game in recruitment and get more people in. Uh, you know, it, it's t time to, to go out there very aggressively because this is talking about the defense of our country, first and foremost. And secondly, it's about being able to be a reliable ally. And so if you don't have operators to put in the equipment that we're trying to procure right now, and broken procurement system, then, uh, you know, we're, we're going to fall farther and farther behind. So, you know, we got to fix procurement. we got to get uh, the, the personnel side of this right. And then we have to retain them and train them so that we have a, a situation where we got uh, a, a fighting force that's able to deal with the threats that we're fa facing right now. You talk about the arms race. Canada's way behind in what's happening in the arms race right now. you got the fastest growing military in China today, and they will surpass the United States, uh, and that's their goal, surpass the United States has been the most powerful military in, in, in the world by 2049. So we have to uh, pick up our, our, our straps, right. bootstraps, and really go to the town and making sure that we 
get the equipment that we so desperately need, need, need now to do our NORAD mission and then participate in NATO. Just to close the subject, Ms. Madsen, I want to ask you this, specifically on, on the personnel. Is there still an issue when you consider everything that has happened in the military, when you consider the allegations of sexual misconduct, is there still a problem there that needs to be addressed before we can address recruitment? Uh, I think they have to go hand in hand. And absolutely, uh, I've certainly been critical of the government not responding as quickly as they needed to, uh, issuing report after report after report. Uh, we've now seen another excellent report by our board, our board, and we're waiting for the minister's response from that. Um, and there's a lot of waiting. So unfortunately, that's, that's been something that the Armed Forces is, is dealing with. But General Air was very specific today as well in that they are looking for all of the opportunities that they possibly can mm -hmm. to, to restructure a lot of that. And one of the key points that, that, that we were talking about in that committee was that um, in a lot of industries or in a lot of sectors, like the healthcare sector, we've seen extreme burnout. Mm -hmm. And so how do we ensure that we're protecting our, our uh, men and women in uniform from that as well if we're asking more from them? And, and he was uh, really quite dedicated to that and talked a lot about uh, investing in their own health care system, right. investing in families and the supports for families, investing in housing. We've had conversations in committee about that often, and these are the changes that we need to see happen well, for people. Lastly, to the parliamentary secretary here for a second, I want to turn, uh, turn over to Haiti for a second. Canada sent <clears throat> armored vehicles to the Caribbean nation, uh, but there's some Haitians, like the former Canadian ambassador to Haiti, Mr. Rival, who says that Canada shouldn't intervene in Haitian affairs until the people and the Haitian government government can resolve the issue. So Canada, should Canada be intervening at this point? Look, we obviously first and foremost are, are watching very closely. We're, we're concerned and uh, our hearts and, and, and uh, prayers go to all the Haitian people that are dealing with it, uh, this right now. Um, our focus uh, is and will continue to be on humanitarian aid. Uh, we we are uh, have a long history of mm -hmm. supporting Haiti uh, through our military uh, and humanitarian aid, and and that's going to be our that's going to be our focus moving forward. Mr. Rizan, just weigh in on this. Yeah, I just want to say that you know this was a multinational, multilateral decision to go and pr provide the, these armored vehicles and to help airlift them in. Uh, you know, I want to make sure that for Foreign Affairs has the proper expert permits in for end use on these uh, armored vehicles and that they're being used for the right reasons, uh, such as bringing um, peace and security to the citizens of Haiti first and foremost. And then uh, ultimately, I hope they get to uh, an election process and democratically right. choose their next government. Ms. Matheson, I got 20 seconds if you. Can. Uh, absolutely, everything that's been said, and ultimately, this is for us to support Haitians in in creating um, that domestic solution that that they that comes from within, and, and we support that. Appreciate it, Ms. Matheson, Mr. Bazan, Mr. May. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate that. Up next, a view from the capital of Ukraine. Another deadly day in Kiev, and politicians on the ground are asking allies for more help. Power play. We'll be right back. Welcome back. A week of targeted attacks have devastated Ukraine's power stations. President Volodymyr Zelensky says 30% of the country's power stations have been destroyed. Cities and villages across Ukraine, including its capital, Kyiv, are experiencing blackouts with limited access to electricity and water. Now, some areas have no water or power at all. So, with winter on the way, can Ukraine, can Ukraine recover? And how critical is the damage to its power stations? Let's find out. 
Joining me now is Kira Rurik, a member of Ukrainian parliament and the leader of the Holos party. Ms. Rurik, thank you so much for joining us today. From what we understand, you are in Kyiv right now. So tell us, what's the situation there? What are you seeing and hearing today? Hello, thank you so much for having me. I am in Kyiv, and today there was another attack of uh, uh, kamikaze drones. They attacked uh, our critical energy infrastructure, and uh, they attacked also homes and killed at least four people, what we have confirmed for today. Yesterday, I woke up at 6 a.m. by the sound of, uh, very similar to the sound of motorcycle that is passing by very closely, and then the explosions. They happened a uh, couple of minutes drive from my home and destroyed our energy infrastructure for the right bank of Kyiv and killed uh, at least six people, including a pregnant woman who was six months pregnant. This is so terrifying because um, there is a limitation of how many rockets Russia has, but they purchased like really many of kamikaze drones that are uh, uh, that are just there to attack us from Iran, and they continue manufacturing that. Another painful thing is that as of right now, 30% of Ukrainian civilian uh, energy infrastructure is destroyed. And over a thousand cities and villages, as of right now, are experiencing electricity outages. So we did hope that we will survive this winter, if not with heat, but with electricity. Right now, there is a huge question mark for that. So, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to ask you about that, about that it's infrastructure. Like they were disunited I mean, how badly in is it like, damaged? Is this something that can be repaired before the winter or not? Somewhere it can be repaired, but let's, uh, let's face it, yesterday's attack was exactly at the same um, energy station that a week ago. So whatever we were able to repair right now is, uh, is damaged again. And having those drones and directing them to concrete places, Russians would be able to uh, actually destroy exactly critical pieces of uh, the energy infrastructure. I wanted to ask you, it has been almost eight months since Russia invaded Ukraine. I mean, we've all seen the strikes, we're seeing the images, the videos, but do you think that the world is paying enough attention and helping Ukraine out enough? You know, what was extremely painful, that after last week's attacks, uh, President Biden and our uh, European alliances, uh, they all uh, made the commitment to providing us with the Air Force protection systems that we need. Not in the amounts that we need, but at least some. And I'm asking this question, why do the damages have to happen? Why do people have to get killed for these decisions to be made? It's not a secret how Russia attacks us. It's something that we have been asking for since the day one. Give us the means to protect ourselves. Because you know, you can be like super brave, you can train with uh, the weapons, you can go and march to the front and protect your country and yourself. But there is absolutely nothing that you can do against the huge piece of metal that is going from the air to kill your, yourself and the loved ones. Nothing. And this is so scary. And the painful thing is that with old air force protection systems that we have in place, we were able to intercept half of the drones that were attacking us. Half. So 
imagine what we could do with the sophisticated systems that would be in place. And this is why we are asking, we are begging for that. Help us save ourselves. Help us actually preserve our lives. And this is what our plea to the whole world is. Uh, what else needs to happen so that we will get what we really, really need to protect ourselves from Russia? Should there be more damages? Is there like a limit of 50% of our energy infrastructure to be destroyed? Is there like a count of deaths that needs to happen so we will receive the aid that we need? We need weapons, we need air force protection systems and wide-range missiles that, that we would, would be using to protect ourselves. So please, please, please give that to us. It's an important message. We appreciate you taking the time. Ukrainian member of parliament and Holos party leader Kira Rudik, thank you so much for joining us again and please stay safe. Thank you and glory to Ukraine. Coming up, while the country saw protests last February, was there a game of political football going on behind the scenes? Was Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson's criticism of the Ontario government his attempt at passing the buck? Former OPP Commissioner Chris Lewis joins our press gallery next. We'd never seen anything like this in our lives, and uh, I think we were all, quite frankly, treading water, trying to keep our head afloat uh, as we uh, saw this situation unfold in front of us. Ottawa's mayor was in the spotlight today. Until this point, Jim Watson is the most senior government official to testify at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Mayor Watson said there were several failure points along the way during the protests even going so far as to single out Ontario Premier Doug Ford as being the weak link in the multi-level government response. And a quick reminder, Premier Ford will not be testifying at this inquiry. So was this a case of governments playing hot potato with the protests? And what jurisdictional lessons can the capital learn for future protests? Let's bring in our press gallery panel to weigh in. Bob Fife is the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief. Tonda McCharles from the Toronto Star. She's the parliamentary reporter there. And our special guest is CTV News public safety analyst Chris Lewis. He's also the former OPP commissioner. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Lewis, let's start with you. When you hear Mayor Watson say that there were several failure points in this multi-level government response, does that surprise you? Well, it doesn't surprise me. He's a politician defending the municipality. There were several failure points, and a big part of that it was the municipality, whether it be within policing and failure to plan and failure to heed intelligence information and failure to have enough resources in place at the front end to prevent this from happening to begin with uh, is probably key. Were there failures after that? I'm sure there were. How coordinated did they need to be, though, on, on all levels, all three levels? Well, they should have all been singing from the same song sheet. A couple of weeks in, we heard the chief of the day say that they formed this, this new uh, wonderful uh, joint command center. That should have been done from day one. That generally is. So why that happened two weeks later is beyond me. Uh, and the mm -hmm. province has a huge responsibility to support municipal police when things are beyond their capability. And I think that was obvious from the start. But I'm told as well, you have to hear from the OPP to be sure that the OPP and the RCMP didn't want to throw, you know, hundreds and hundreds of resources at an event 
that wasn't properly planned for yet and weren't confident their people would be used properly. And that was the thing that stopped this thing from being looked after right from the beginning, my view. Not enough people. It wasn't because they didn't have enough law. Bob, I want to bring you in here. Ottawa's a unique city in terms of the capital because you have so many jurisdictions around Parliament Hill, on Parliament Hill as well. You have the Parliamentary Protective Service. Mm -hmm. How difficult is that? And do you think that the government, in a sense, is trying to pass the buck here of whose responsibility any of this was? Well, that's what's happening is everybody's finger pointing. Nobody's accepting responsibility. I mean, look at uh, Watson said today that um, you know, he supported the bringing in of the Emergency Act, but a week before it was brought in, he voted against it mm -hmm. uh, when it was uh, uh, Caroline Meehan, one of the councillors, had put it in. So there's a lot of finger pointing. I mean, the big problem here is that the Ottawa police did not act. And um, the, 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 uh, there was a delay uh, from the Ford government for mm -hmm. sure, but part of that was that they, they felt that uh, the Ontario Ottawa police were not doing their job, and all they had to do was actually enforce the law, ticket people, tow trucks, uh, uh, which... Uh, do they, their job. Do their job. Which, the uh, you and I, we watched them. They didn't do their job. Yeah. We watched them. How many times did we see people going by with gas? And I mean, the police never did anything. Yeah. So, the, you know, I think the, the real responsibility here, first of all, lies with Ottawa police, and it lies with, with Watson. And then, you know, clearly the Ontario government uh, are, have, a, have a responsibility here too, and they, they took too long to act, as did the federal government. Tonda, I want to bring you in here. You're at the inquiry. Were, were you shocked by the criticisms leveled at Ontario Premier Doug Ford? I mean, is it fair to criticize Ford when he won't be able to defend himself at this inquiry? Well, he will be able to defend himself uh, if the inquiry calls him, and they haven't ruled that out, and if he volunteers to come. Um, I don't think that uh, Justice Rouleau would turn down a request by the Premier to come and defend how his government um, responded. But look, I mean, to the point about were there failures all along the way, absolutely. We've heard um, already evidence, even in these early days, about all those failures. The failure, as uh, Chris Lewis said, of the Ottawa police to heed the warnings of what was coming. Um, their unbelievable uh, assessment that somehow they had no legal authority to stop trucks from coming into downtown to ensconce for, even if they thought it was going to be three days, three days, because somehow they thought that the truckers had the trucks had a charter right to come into the downtown and protest. Um, the, the failures go on up the line, and I think uh, there's a lot of blame to go around, and there's a lot of butt covering, frankly, that's going on right now. And you he we've, we've heard it from every witness that's got up there and defended how they saw things and why they didn't act. But um, look, just to the, the some of the new stuff we're hearing, too, I mean, I think from the provincial response, we're, we're also learning things like, you know, the provincial solicitor general said and kept arguing, oh, no, we've given you 1,500 OPP officers. Well, that's a number that, you know, was thrown out repeatedly to both the feds and the city. But they had no evidence that that reflected any reality. At any given point, Ottawa City Police thought they had about 40 OPP officers at their disposal. They thought, is she just, like, adding up all the numbers and the shifts and the hours over the days? They had no idea. Look, failures on many levels, and I think that, uh, you know, even though I watched it all and covered it all and thought I understood this story, I'm still amazed at the, some of the details that are coming out. And, you know, one of the big ones today we heard was that uh, CSIS assessment was that there were no foreign involvement fundraiser actors or influence on this protest.
and I bet we're going to learn more. Mr. Lewis, I wanted to ask you, though, let's try and sort of go forward here. What lessons can the city learn from this ordeal? I mean, does jurisdictional overlap, like we see here in Ottawa, need to be better defined? You know, I don't really think it does. I think it needs to be better applied. And I don't want to just blame the city of Ottawa or Ottawa police in any way. There was mistakes made, for sure. There always is. But the mistakes made at the front of end of this allowed this to take root in a way that it became this larger-than-life, unprecedented organism of hell, really. I can't think of any way, better way to describe it that was tough to remove. It's like trying to get rid of cancer when it's small as opposed to it takes over half your body. And that's what occurred here. And so there was failure at that front end. But a lot of people still equate the end result as being cleared with the uh, invocation of the Emergencies Act. The two aren't contingent on one another. You could have had the people there like we had 20,000 police officers in Ottawa for, or Toronto for the G20. You could have had a few thousand there prior to this, even with less time than they had there. And that would have stopped it from getting as bad as it did and would have prevented this whole conversation from even taking place. Bob, there was a transcript that we saw today, a conversation between Jim Watson and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and they were talking about Premier Doug Ford. And obviously, when we saw it, it was clear that the Prime Minister did not think that Doug Ford was uh, really handling this well, calling, saying that he was hiding from it right now. We see a different image of the two of them when they're shoulder to shoulder, even Ford saying, I'm shoulder to shoulder with this guy. I was happy that we brought in the Emergencies Act. Does that transcript burn that relationship now? I don't know. Maybe we have to see uh, if there's a transcript of Trudeau talking to Ford when he's dumping, probably dumping on Watson. Right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, look, one of the things that we know from, uh, from what happened here is uh, because the police did not enforce the law, and you and I know this, because we talked to the, the truckers, they didn't think the cops were ever going to do anything. Right. And as soon as the police actually came in in force, and they looked like they were taking, and they're going to start taking their trucks away, these guys highballed it out of here as fast as you could possibly go. go. I mean, they, yeah. they were very worried they're going to lose their trucks. So, I mean, the one lesson we have to learn is the police have to enforce the law. And if they don't, it undermines confidence in the police in doing their jobs. We're going to have to wrap it up for right now. Tonda, we'll get back to you uh, a little bit later. Um, thank you all for joining us. Really appreciate that on this panel. The press gallery will continue after the break. And coming up, why is a Toronto researcher calling Canada's cybersecurity bill a bad law that must be amended? He'll tell the press gallery right after this break. Stay with PowerPlay. Last June, the federal government introduced its long-awaited legislation, which formally seeks to ban China's Huawei and ZTE technologies from Canada's 4G and 5G wireless networks. Bill C-26 is expected to beef up Canada's cybersecurity by requiring key industries like telecommunications, finance, energy and transportation to beef up their cyber systems. But today, a new report by the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab is calling the current form of Bill C-26 a bad law. And it warns author authoritarian governments could use the bill as a template to justify their own repressive security legislation. So in trying to block Huawei from Canada, was the government too hasty in drafting its cybersecurity bill? 
Let's bring back to the press gallery panel the, the Globe's the Globe and Mail's Bob Fife, the Toronto Star's Tonda McCharles, and our special guest from the Citizen Lab, Christopher Parsons. He's also the author of this report. Thank you all for being here, Mr. Parsons. Let's start with you. Now, it's clear you think that there's an issue with Bill C-26. You've called for about 30 amendments in total. At this point, does the bill just need to be scrapped or can it be salvaged? So, thanks for having me. And that's a good question. I don't think the bill needs to be scrapped. The government of Canada has introduced cybersecurity legislation in order to ensure that critical infrastructure is more secure. And when telecommunications companies or other critical infrastructure providers don't, then the government can compel changes. That's good. The problem, however, is the way that the bill is drafted. And in the report that we've issued, we've identified how the legislation can be more tightly associated with the democratic norms and values that we expect of Canadian legislation. So, Bob, I want to bring you in here for a second. Now, uh, this is in part to formalize the ban of Huawei um, in Canadian in their technologies in Canadian 5G networks. So, despite all the shortcomings, is there pressure on MPs to pass this to formalize that process of banning Huawei from Canada? Uh, well, look, uh, the legislation has to be amended, and mm -hmm. Chris has done a really excellent job of. Uh, showing some of the shortcomings in the legislation. And we've seen that with the online uh, legislation before uh, the Senate now, um, that the government is drafting legislation in a hurry and it's not seeking out uh, wider uh, commentary mm -hmm. and input from people before it goes to the House of Commons. So this legislation will be changed in committee. If not in the House of Commons committee, it will be done in the Senate. Um, and largely they will be able to go on the basis of what Chris has done to make right. sure that the legislation is, is properly done. But I do think that government, the, the, the governments have been uh, really lax in putting in legislation without properly uh, casting a wider net and getting right. more input before the legislation is put before Parliament. Tonda, I want to bring you in here. I mean, we're seeing the government face criticism over the reforms of the, the Broadcasting Act, known as Bill C-11. Does this government have a problem with appearing as a repeat overreacher? Well, look, actually, I disagree with what Bob just said. I mean, in fact, the government is trying at the same time to legislate online uh, streaming giants and platforms and news and harms all at once. They've got three major initiatives that they're trying to roll out, uh, you know, regulating online harms, regulating online news and regulating online streaming services. And, you know, they're struggling, actually. One of those bills is, hasn't even been brought, even though they've been talking about it for a couple of years. Uh, the other one is at its early stages. The other one has been reintroduced. So I actually think the government struggles a great deal to actually regulate um, in the cyberspace writ large. Uh, you know, perhaps they rushed, and I think Christopher Parsons is, is in a better place than I am to assess whether that bill was particularly particularly rushed. He, do, he do, has done an assessment of it that shows some shortcomings. But on the other case, in the other cases, you know, I'm baffled by why this government hasn't actually been able to effectively regulate, given that other countries like the EU, uh, other entities, other governments, governing bodies like the EU has been able to act. So actually, you know, I, I think it's maybe, it's, it's hard to say whether they um, are overreaching. Uh, they're barely reaching. So how do you explain that they are barely, barely reaching? I mean, is it, as Bob said, that they're not consulting enough, Tonda? I think they're consulting a lot and being lobbied a lot by the big telecoms companies and the platforms. And I think that, I mean, I don't know that so exactly they why the they're then? struggling for it. Uh, 
You tell me. I mean, this government <laughs> does endless and endless and endless consultations, right? Like, pick a bill and go online and look at the sort of, you know, masses of, of consultations that actually never seem to end up anywhere. Uh, Chris, I wanted to go back to you. When it comes to Bill C-26 and Bill C-11, do you have a sense that this government has a really good grip and understanding of our new modern digital world? I mean, are, you've warned about that, that cost of compliance and that it could be a burden for telecommunications providers. Canada also deals with the lack of competition and high prices. Could that, you know, could this, exa exa could this exacerbate that? And just a reminder to people that Bell is a parent company of CTV, but I wanted to ask you that question, Chris. I think there is a real potential that when and if the government issues its cybersecurity orders or regulations, that we could see an increase in cost to the providers themselves, and as a result, that could be passed down to subscribers. There's another potential cost as well. If the government requires telecommunications companies to implement certain changes that, frankly, they just can't do, either because they're not technically able to or they're not financially able to, that may mean that certain services, especially in rural Canada, are simply terminated. And under the legislation, there is no ability for telecommunications providers to seek remuneration. And indeed, when the ministers uh, announced their policy statement around Huawei and CTE several months ago, there was almost a glee in that no one would be paid for ripping out Huawei. Well, that applies for all of the security demands, not just Huawei, but anything else that is required as well. And that'll affect uh, telecommunications companies and by extension, one way or the other, Canadians as well. Bob, I've only got about a minute left, so if you can take half, I'll give the other half to Tonda. As Russia becomes a bigger mm -hmm. uh, a cybersecurity threat, does Canada face that security to bolster cybersecurity? Well, we need to do it. I mean, China and Russia are the, uh, the worst culprits in terms of uh, going after our own cyber, uh, our own cyber mm -hmm. uh, space in Canada. And, um, you know, we put more money into the communication security establishment, but this legislation is important because it's requiring our telecoms to make sure that they're more secure in, so that they can't shut down our networks, for example. Tonda, if you can do it in 30 seconds, I can get you in here. Well, look, I mean, I think that no one can argue against what Mr. Parsons is calling for, greater transparency, more, more, more accountability on the part of the government for the regulations it's prepared to impose on the private sector in the name of cybersecurity. Appreciate that, Tonda. That's Tonda McCharles from the Toronto Star. <laughs> We've also got Bob Fife from the Globe and Mail, Chris Parsons. Thank you so much for being with us as well. That is your Power Play Day in Politics. Thanks for spending your time with us. We'll be back here tomorrow.